I think in the fall, I'm going to try setting up a Bitcoin node on a Raspberry Pi 4 compute module. I got a little carrier board that I, I think I'll be able to hook up maybe a SATA drive to for the blockchain. Maybe. I've heard some people got it working. And I'm going to try installing it in the RV. So I'll have a mobile Bitcoin node, truly decentralized. Now, are you going to be able to use a node in a box like a Raspi Blitz or Samurai Dojo? Or are you going to need to compile that software and build it for the compute module? Yeah. Yeah, I already have the hardware. Um, I don't have the module yet, but I think I will by then. I'm kind of, I'm expecting to rearrange some of my hardware setup. And uh, I, I'll i just probably build it from scratch. Maybe I'll use Nix. Maybe I'll use something else. I'm kind of leaning towards Nix because they have a really good Bitcoin node setup. Yeah, Nix Bitcoin looks really good. And I like Nix a lot. But it's Nix Bitcoin hardware agnostic. Like it'll figure out if it's on top of an ARM board versus an x86 system, which is a standard PC. I haven't checked it. The way Nix works, is you you tell Nix what you want built and how to build it roughly, and then it just goes and builds that and pulls all the packages and independencies and creates the things you need to do it. So you could say something to Nix like, "I want the Lightning uh, Node Daemon," and if that is packaged up for Nix, which it is, it'll figure out all the other bits it needs. And so I think you would just take essentially like a little bit of YAML that explains what the system is supposed to do, and I think you could just drop that on a Nix box that you've already set up, like a real bare bones one, and then tell it to rebuild, and it would just rebuild as the Nix Bitcoin. I see. We need to get the Nix Bitcoin developers on here to talk you through that. That would be so fun. How awesome would that be? Like just to do like a little sanity check. Right. Before I do it. Yeah. And then we'll get their contact. You can just hit them up when you run into problems. <laughs> Attack support. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. I just complain here on the show. I mean, come on. This is the whole <laughs> Linux. It's so easy when you know the core development team and can ask them for help. <laughs> <laughs> This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, August 26, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Hey, it's me. I'm Chris. I'm over here building nodes. Hi, everybody. Hey. Welcome back. How's it going over there? Pretty good. We, we never do that. We never do the, how's it going? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Oh, hi. I'm yeah, very good. Hi. You know, I got a new cat this week. Yeah. That's not actually true. I didn't, <laughs> I actually. Good day to you, sir. <laughs> you know why? Because we got too much show. We do indeed. Today we're going to discuss donations raised for Hodlnot's defense against a nuisance libel suit from Craig Wright, a shot across the bow for crypto securities by SEC Chief Gary Gensler. In the theme of frivolous lawsuits, we have another frivolous lawsuit by some crypto tout called BitBoy against a critic. In economics, a short article about a recession that has been mostly forgotten and was short for some interesting reasons. Our show favorite billionaire, Arthur Hayes, about his USD liquidity index and how Bitcoin seems to be doing its job responding to shocks in global US dollar liquidity. Jerome Powell spoke at Jackson Hole, and that speech will be sort of interest in the context of Arthur's research. In tokenomics, we have a fun story about a traditional bank issuing too many securities, which in a roundabout way should shows the worst possible outcome for all these crypto ICOs. We also have an article from an influencer named Kobe who walks through his rationale for staking ApeCoin. He does this with a straight face, but this is true market nihilism. And then to wrap up tokenomics, we're going to get into the merge, the Ethereum merge, what it means, what the implications are. Sorry for everyone who's sick about it, but I think that it probably is an important milestone in crypto. It's happening next month, supposedly. We just want to have the basics down so we are up to date on this subject. 
And truthfully, details are kind of developing each week. This is kind of the moment to document and capture those. Then in Bitcoin education, we are responding to some boosts asking for a dive into Bitcoin transactions and V-bytes. I have to say, I think we have a good handle on transactions, but V-bytes is a whole different beast. So we'll try and get into that, but we may need some help from the listeners on fully wrapping our minds around what a V-byte really is. Then we'll have some feedback and boosts. I'm looking forward to it. It is a well-rounded show. And of course, we'll have links as always in your podcast player or on the website for everything we talk about. But why don't we start with Holdenot's defense? Because I was reading up on Holdenot and he doesn't seem like to be someone who is really well off and was initially concerned about this libel suit from Craig Wright. But in big part, thanks to the OpenSats project, a lot of people were really quick to come to his defense. And we also linked to a comment on Reddit by Greg Maxwell, a a former Bitcoin core maintainer, I think. And Greg points out that the community has been sort of ignoring the threat of Craig Wright because when Craig goes around suing people and hassling developers, it puts a chill on the space and it can seriously hurt people who were just minding their business. A lot of people have written off Peter McCormack or Hoddlenot as trolls. They say, hey, you were picking a fight with an idiot and serves you right. And I think that that's completely the wrong point of view. Our last interview with the Dr. Bitcoin podcast, which is put on by Arthur Van Pelt and Mark Hunter to Craig Wright watchers, they basically confirm that the legal threat of Craig Wright really is disruptive to Bitcoin development. And we kind of need to squash it in the bud, even though it's been going on for eight years now. Yeah, just after last week's episode was uh, wrapped up, saw a couple of threads on Twitter from some Bitcoin developers who said that this Craig Wright stuff was the, the straw that broke the camel's back for them and that they're just kind of like, between the not really making any money doing it, the fact that it's extremely tedious, intricate, hard work that is scrutinized like no other project, and then you've got Craig Wright going around suing developers because of copyright violation or because they link to a Bitcoin white paper or, you know, like in the UK, the, the, original, the original link to the original white paper is still blocked. Um, I didn't realize that until I read this Reddit post that you linked in here. And I was, it was really, I think it's, I think it's really good that this developer opened up and kind of went through all of this and explained it because I think a lot of us knew the edges of this, but this really gave me the context. And now I really, I really feel like um, any kind of lawsuit, any kind of fight, whatever it is that somebody's raising funds for to go uh, to fight against Craig Wright, I'm there. I, and I think this is a great use of open sats. Uh, in the past, I have contributed some of, I've done a split in some of the JB shows to open sats, and I think I'm going to do it again. I think this is a great use of the Lightning Network. It's a great use of community fundraising, and we need to stop this troll. And for more context on the Craig Wright story, please see the last interview I've released with the Dr. Bitcoin podcast and check out the Dr. Bitcoin podcast because it's a lot of nonsense, but it is important because this guy, Craig Wright, he's a documented fraudster. He was committing a tax fraud against the Australian Taxation Office, and he involved Bitcoin in his fraud, and it kind of ran away from him, it snowballed, and he ends up having to pretend to be Satoshi Nakamoto to keep his head above water. And that leads into all these problems we're having now with him suing developers and basically weaponizing the legal system. And this story, in my view, really speaks to how Bitcoin is not inevitable. Bitcoin is a Hail Mary. And the fact that Craig Wright, who's a complete non-entity, he just doesn't matter at all. He shouldn't have any ability to influence any important figures in Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin, yet he still does seem to have some ability to put a chill on developers and on people in the space. So it's not something to ignore. It is kind of an interesting story. I think it's a reminder to keep humble about the future of Bitcoin. We all kind of need to do our part to make sure we get to experience the Bitcoin future we want. Yeah, we all kind of go around talking like it's a foregone conclusion. It's just a matter of time. We're just early. And there is a website, the Defending BTC website, where you can donate to the Knot Defense. I think they've hit their fundraising target, but check it out if you want to help. I love that you put the story in here. I, I figured this would never even show up on your radar. And if it ever did show up on your radar, we'd never talk about it in the show. But talking about just silly lawsuits, it kind of makes sense. BitBoy, Ben Armstrong, who is a laughable clown figure in the crypto space on YouTube, sued a critic, of another fellow YouTuber. You know, his whole channel is criticizing things. Lovely. But he called uh, BitBoy a dirtbag because it's been leaked that Bit will shill any crap cryptocurrency. He has a price sheet that he sends out to the projects. He has a large YouTube channel, but he actually doesn't have even the largest crypto YouTube channel. He has probably the second or third largest. And he will take huge sums of money to shill any project. And then after they pump and then inevitably dump like they all have, he'll then go delete all of his videos and tweets where he ever talked about that stuff. Right. And if you look at the Twitter thread where Atozi talks about this lawsuit, has BitBoy rescinded it or pulled it back or something? Yeah, but only in the most dirtbag way possible. His response was, oh, I guess I'm so famous now that when I sue somebody, it becomes headline news. And so I regret doing so. And so he canceled the lawsuit. Classic Streisand effect, right? Any lawsuit like this is public information. So of course it was going to come out. But his whole bailing of like, well, I'm just so popular that now everybody's talking about it. So I'm just not going to do it. He claimed $75,000 in damages. The other ironic thing in, in the lawsuit, he says that criticism harmed his reputation as a financial advisor and, you know, somebody who gives advice on crypto. But then, of course, in every single video, he says, this is not financial advice. You know, don't do what I say. Uh, in, in every single video, he says that. But then in the lawsuit, he claims it harmed his reputation as a financial advisor. Wow. I mean, it sounds like he would like an SEC investigation for promoting unregistered securities. I think this is why he jumped, is I think these quote unquote influencers are absolutely terrified of the SEC going after them for promoting these securities. Now, here's why it matters to Bitcoiners. I bet this has happened to a lot of you out there. You know, you find out about this space, you look at the price of Bitcoin, you start doing research, legitimate research, you know, because you're good at that kind of stuff. And you come across these influencers, these YouTubers talking about this stuff, and they talk about it like everything's sort of equal. Like Ethereum and Cordana and Polkadot, they're all kind of equal, right? And Solana and Bitcoin, they're all just digital assets which you can buy and sell and trade. And this is the world in which they live in. And they talk about all of this stuff and they lead people down the path to buy into these currencies, especially when they're pumping, especially when they're pumping, because, you know, you could you could buy up a whole bunch of ADA for like 30 bucks. Right. So they'll get you to just spend little bits of money here, here and here. Of course, these pumps, these projects are not that big. They inevitably dump and they never recover. And these influencers, quote unquote, just go right along doing the same game, just deleting their old videos that make them look bad, deleting their old tweets, just doing the churn. Meanwhile, they're really making money from the deals they're doing on the back end to promote certain projects over other projects or to mention a certain crypto game. Or maybe there's a new exercise app that rewards you in crypto. And they'll promote that. Or maybe they bring on, like I just watched a YouTuber do this yesterday, uh, some developers who are writing a game that's a pay-to-play game. And so they brought the developers on to talk about it. There are financial transactions behind all of that. And all of that takes people away from Bitcoin. And it gets them caught up in this altcoin casino that inevitably just drains funds from them and gives people a bad impression and leads them down the route of scams. 
I think that this gets into last week how we brought up the 3AC failure and how Kyle Davies and Suzu, the two principals behind that hedge fund turned potential Ponzi scheme, were legacy finance guys who then got into crypto because it's mostly unregulated and they could get away with doing things that are clearly illegal and unfeasible in traditional markets. And so oddly enough, Bitcoin really seems to be a different kind of beast, the openness of development, the lack of insiders. If you're a Bitcoin whale, congratulations. But over time, you're just going to have less and less Bitcoin because there are no insider synergies in Bitcoin. You can only spend Bitcoin. Or even there's no PR department. Like you and I were doing a little bit of pre-show research and you pretty quickly sniffed out that there is a marketing campaign going on for a very popular cryptocurrency right now because of a very popular thing they have coming up. And there's clearly a coordinated effort to get the word out there. And people today are no doubt publishing articles because of a conversation they had with someone from a department at this foundation. And there's nobody doing that for Bitcoin. And all these other cryptocurrencies, all the bigger, like all the ones in the top 10 have that. Right. And so if Bitcoin is about getting away from the insiders and the old boys club of the traditional financial system, crypto, quote unquote, is key fiat insiders dumping on retail to the nth degree. And so you just can't get away from the fact that all of these crypto projects that affinity scan with Bitcoin are nothing like Bitcoin. They don't have the network effect. They don't have the decentralized community simply because they grow up in a world where Bitcoin has already demonstrated that it's possible for a new asset to monetize. It changes the behavior of everyone involved. The reason that Bitcoin ownership is more distributed than stock ownership as in a high percentage of the stock market, the US stock market is owned by the richest people in the world, whereas Bitcoin is much more equally distributed between billionaires and regular people than even the stock market with a 200 year head start. You know, because Bitcoin has shown that this is possible, that it's possible to create something that then becomes money-like, human behavior changes. And early Bitcoiners, they gave away Bitcoin. They bought pizzas with Bitcoin. This spread Bitcoin far and wide that actually contributed to its network effect. Whereas with these new altcoins, insiders hoard them, they wait for local tops, and then they dump. And this actually destroys these network effects. So you couple this change in behavior with the fact that the world really wants to converge on a single type of money. It's not useful to have 100 different monies. We really want one. And for over 50 years, the US dollar has filled that role. Now that the dollar system is working less well, there's an opening for something new to start fulfilling the role of money. And Bitcoin is ready to do that. All of these other projects are just noise, frankly. And you can see that in the way that they peak and then they fall in Bitcoin terms. And they all do this, even Ethereum. And there's an article we linked to, I think two episodes ago, called Insiders Always Dump. I recommend reading it. And it explains this phenomenon quite clearly. Yep. And I think you have to acknowledge it's just the perfect time in history for these types of projects and scams to exist. It is the era of social media and all of this stuff is digital. There's no banks. There's, I mean, there is to get in, you have to do an ACH transfer or something of that equivalent, but they're online 24 seven. They integrate perfectly with social media. You know, when, when we talk about these influencers charging for an ad, he'll get paid in the currency that he's promoting and then he can cash it out as well. So there's, there's like another element to this where these projects are using some of their pre-mined funds as sort of a PR budget and they're paying off some of these influencers in that local currency. And then 
that, that just incentivizes that YouTuber or whoever it might be. It only incentivizes them more to pump it because then they get they get more of a return on the deal. And of course, they're going to sell top. I mean, all of these altcoins, what they have is a marketing budget. This is what Bitcoin doesn't have. And Bitcoin doesn't want a marketing budget. But once that budget is used up, the coin disappears. And that's the pattern that repeats itself. The other thing that is enabling these altcoin scams is a lack of of regulatory enforcement from traditional regulators like the SEC. We've talked with crypto lawyer Jill Williamson about why this is the case. And a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, I think, seeks to obfuscate the problem of SEC regulation because Gary comes out and he says, listen, crypto might be based on a new technology, but you're doing investment type stuff. It looks like stuff stuff that the SEC regulates. And we have fined companies like BlockFi for breaking securities laws. And so you are breaking securities laws and you need to come and talk to the SEC. On the one hand, I think that what Gary is saying is very reasonable. I generally agree with the sentiment. On the other hand, it's kind of BS in that the SEC doesn't have the resources to quote unquote talk to all of these thousands of crypto projects. And they don't have the resources to regulate all of them because they've been suing Ripple, one of the largest altcoin scams for several years now. And Ripple is, frankly, holding their own in court with the SEC. And so I think that what we're seeing is that the traditional securities market actually self-regulated very well because it was difficult for scam companies to get listed on major exchanges. You still had scam penny stocks and scam companies that are trading on over-the-counter desks that have much less oversight than getting listed on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. But on the whole, the traditional securities industry regulates itself. They're aware that all of their activity exists at the behest of the SEC and other regulators. And so there are gatekeepers that don't allow the scams through. That doesn't happen in crypto. And so it means that to regulate these crypto markets, you actually need a regulator with a huge enforcement arm that goes out into the wild and starts killing these scam projects. Now, I don't think that that's likely to happen because there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of appetite in the U.S. to increase regulation of securities, mainly because that would fall on both crypto companies and on traditional corporates who have a lot of political power. But Gary needs to talk a good game. And I think that long term, what he's angling for is to paint himself as an aggressive regulator so that Congress issues some sort of bill that clarifies that the SEC is the crypto regulator, not the CFTC, the Commodities Future trading commission. And what will happen after that clarification is made is anyone's guess. But I see a political move in this op-ed. I don't think that there's really too much that's going to change in the short term. I agree. And I, I don't think we got much new um, other than uh, he kind of flexed his verbiage muscles a little bit. I think a lot of people rightly called him out for his claims of just reach out, get in contact, get in touch with us. Let's talk. We'll figure it out. Yeah, such crap. Like, How do you get a hold of him? How do you get a hold of it? Well, you just call them up 1-800- SEC 666. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You can't just do that. Um, the whole thing just seemed like a lot of signaling. I think your analysis is astute. You have a lot of agencies 
that would love to be involved in regulating crypto. Even um, even the Secret Service wants in on the fun. And the FBI absolutely feels there's a big component of law enforcement that they should have a big chunk of. Of course, the SEC as well. And all of these institutions, they're going to try to lead by example and just kind of create the new standard and then hope Congress comes along and just codifies it. We'll see. I feel like there's this whole issue of Ethereum still that somebody should figure out. But especially now that it's going to become proof of stake, it feels like to me it's even more of a security once it goes proof of stake. Uh, and whichever agency wants to make that tough call, I think will be the one that probably has my support. <laughs> and for a break from the current regulatory uncertainty, we turn back the clock to 1920. And there's an interesting economic episode. 1920 to 1921 is actually one of the shortest recessions in modern American history. So short that it's been mainly forgotten prior to the 1928 stock market crash and then the Great Recession that followed. But we often think of the 1920s as the Roaring Twenties, which were a period of financial speculation and kind of a booming American economy. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The 1920s were sort of an interesting period of a failure of a pseudo gold standard. Britain was attempting to stay on a gold standard, but they really couldn't maintain it. So they actually had requested that the U.S. suppress interest rates in the United States to prevent funds from flowing out of Britain to chase higher interest rates in the United States. And these lower interest rates in the 1920s generally contributed to a stock bubble and, and financial bubble. But 1920 to 21 was an interesting recession post-World War one. There were relatively high government deficits and debt going into this recession. And what's notable is that even though the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, had already been founded by 1920, there was basically no government response to this economic contraction. What happened instead was sort of a rapid fall in GDP, adjustment of prices downwards, and then a rapid expansion of the economy that then led into the roaring 20s. It's an interesting contrast to our modern sort of expectations around government intervention in recessions. There's a speech by Republican presidential nominee Harding in 1920, where he says, let us call to all the people for thrift and economy, for denial and sacrifice, if need be, for a nationwide drive against extravagance and luxury, a recommittal to simplicity of living, to that prudent and normal plan of life, which is the health of the republic. It's hard to imagine any politician, especially one who's campaigning for president, making a call like that today. And I think that this kind of speaks to a change in popular culture and expectations about what the government's role in economic life is. Yeah, that's a pretty big shift in tone from what we have today, where it's very carefully centrally managed. That's fascinating. And they're a candidate too. So it's sort of, you got to assume it was a fairly popular position for one to take, otherwise it would be too risky. And, you know, I thought I'd never even heard of this before. So I was reading up on it a little bit. And yeah, sure enough, it it seems pretty legitimate. I mean, they had a 17% decline in GDP. They had a pretty big jump in unemployment too. Uh, but by late summer of 21, they had things already turned around. I find that absolutely fascinating. By 23, things are in great shape. I mean, if you look at this situation we're in right now, I mean, I think you could safely say it probably really started to fall apart in November of 2021. Or maybe in 2008, if you consider this an extended recession, like our last week's article from Emil Kalinowski. I recommend taking a look at 
at this article, a bit of forgotten economic history and a bit interesting. It speaks to the potential for market solutions to recession. And maybe that's a superior approach than relying on more centralized policy solutions that you know seem to kind of suppress growth long term as they lead to unintended consequences. Well, I woke up this morning, made myself a little breakfast, got myself a little caffeine in my system. And not too long after that, Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, was giving his Jackson Hole speech. The Mucky Mucks get together and have a good time over in Wyoming. Jackson Hole's a beautiful area. And everybody was listening to see the tone of Jerome. Would he be hawkish or would he be dovish? And trying to get an idea if the monetary tightening and the increasing of the rates would continue or not. Some have been expecting September might be the end of it. Some have been wondering if it's going to continue on. And all of it was fairly standard. Nothing really too new. Sounds like, you know, they're really committed to getting inflation down still. But there was one moment in the speech that really struck me where he said, uh, you know, we're just going to have to continue to see a softening of the employment market, which means jobs. And the American people are just going to feel some pain for some time. The entire situation is framed in, well, look, what do you want? Do you want a total economic collapse or do you just want to have a little bit of a recession? You know, it's tough for some of us, but it's better than it wrecking all of us. That's essentially the theme of his speech, as if there was only these two choices and that there was nothing they could have done. There couldn't have been any other direction. It's just, well, now we only have these two options, which is essentially true. But to hear him say it, to me, I hear recession. I hear economic pain continues and I hear more unemployment from that speech. And uh, it's for the good. It's the medicine we need, apparently. Well, it's almost like he's channeling his inner Harding, who's saying we all need a bit of thrift, except that's not really what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to crush consumer demand and that's going to let up pressure on inflation, except I'm not sure that's the case because didn't we see today at the news that Iran might be selling more oil on international markets? OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, came out and said, hold on there. If oil supply increases, we're going to cut supply because we like high prices. And so the entire premise of the Fed fighting inflation via reducing consumer demand by basically making poor Americans poorer is premised on the fact that supply will remain constant of energy of whatever people want to buy, except it seems that at least when it comes to energy, an important input, if you reduce demand, supply will also reduce because producers like those high prices. Right, right. I wonder at the Fed's ability to fine tune the economy. I think that it's probably not something they can really manage and that this is mainly an exercise in signaling their credibility as inflation fighters. And this, of course, gets to Jeffrey Schneider, the sort of famous euro dollar economist. And Jeffrey's point is that the Fed has actually given up on trying to understand money. What they're trying to do is manage short-term expectations. It's a mind game. That's all they're doing. And so when people are concerned about inflation, in order to continue the mind game, the Fed must act like they're dealing with inflation, except inflation is complicated. It involves the intersection of money with the real world, and the Fed can't control the real world. And also, they don't necessarily control money either, which leads us to Arthur Hayes' latest article, Teach Me Daddy. Wow, Arthur, you really have a way with words, huh? I don't know. To me, some of the signal is lost in Arthur's message. So I'm always grateful for your steadfastness at going through these, taking them down, breaking them down for us because I just really can't follow Arthur in the way he writes. Yeah, that's a good point. He's like, I'm going to give you my very valuable thoughts, but you must feel uncomfortable while you receive them <laughs> or something like that. I don't know, man. It feels like uh, someone's on the edge. <laughs> They're on the edge, man. 
I think Arthur's been on the edge for many years. <laughs> Feel free to boost in, Arthur, and correct us. Set up that interview. Set the record straight. Let us know. I mean, there's only one way to clear your name at this point. I know. Coming on the Bitcoin Dad Pod. <laughs> So Arthur lines up this article by mentioning Felix Zuloff. We've mentioned Felix in the past because Felix released a article which was basically, I think it was titled The New Bretton Woods. And the idea was that with the U.S. sanctioning of Russia, the equilibrium of the dollar-based petrodollar system was falling apart. And we were going to see a new monetary standard, maybe based around oil, based around gold, based around something else. I don't think enough time has gone by for us to see if things are happening according to Felix's prediction. But Felix has another aspect to his analysis, which is that he thinks that the quantity of money is more important than the price. The concept of the quantity of money is pretty complicated. This gets into Jeffrey Schneider's work with euro dollars. But for the sake of Arthur's analysis, he's focusing on three measurable things that can be used to create an index of US dollar liquidity. To break it down, US dollar liquidity is basically the amount of U.S. dollars sloshing around the world financial systems. And when you have a lot of dollars sloshing around, they kind of pour into assets and they tend to inflate the price of stocks, chase after yield in crypto assets. And so more dollars equals risk on equals frothy financial markets equals Bitcoin and cryptos go up. Less dollars do the opposite. So Bitcoin tends to surge when there are a lot of dollars in the world. And this makes sense because Bitcoin is completely fixed in supply. The dollar is completely elastic in supply. And so when dollars go up, the Bitcoin, which is fixed, has a higher dollar price. And when dollars go down, the Bitcoin, which is fixed, has a lower dollar price. That kind of makes sense. What's interesting here is that Arthur identifies that there are actually three components you can see that give you a sense of how many dollars are sloshing around the world financial markets at the moment. The first is the size of the U.S. Fed balance sheet. This is the balance sheet of the New York Fed. It is all of the financial assets that the Fed has purchased with money. I think that there's some complexity around does the Fed buy assets with money or with bank reserves? which you know might or might not be money, depending on who you ask. That's kind of a complicated question. But generally speaking, I think a safe assumption is that when the Federal Reserve balance sheet goes up, it means that the Fed is sort of creating money and trying to inject it into the economy, and that creates more dollars sloshing around the world. You also have the reverse repo balance held at the New York Fed. We have mentioned repo in the context of the European debt crisis and how in Europe there is a repo facility facility with the European Central Bank, where financial entities can give the European Central Bank Italian government debt and receive euros in return. And they have to pay these euros back and get their Italian government debt back within one day, generally. Reverse repo is sort of the opposite in the sense that it sucks liquidity out of the financial system. And so at the New York Fed, you can actually give the Fed dollars via the reverse repo facility and get a short-term interest rate, but you have to take the dollars back generally within a day. And so as the RRP reverse repo facility balance increases, it's actually sucking dollars out of the world. 
Now, the final element of Arthur's liquidity index is the U.S. Treasury General Account, the TGA. This is basically the U.S. government's checking account. When it goes up, it means that money is flowing into the government checking account and it is not available in the broader economy. And so this generally means there's less money in the broader economy. And when it goes down, it means that the U.S. government is spending money into the economy, which increases dollar liquidity. Now, that might seem complicated, but what's the big picture? The big Big picture is that these three facilities combine to sort of determine how much money is sloshing around the economy. And while Jerome Powell is talking a tough game about the Fed keeping financial conditions tight and the Federal Reserve balance sheet shrinking, which it hasn't really done yet, the Treasury General account and reverse repo facilities actually seem to be injecting money into the economy. And this sort of speaks to the potential that the Fed and Treasury are colluding, not in the way you would think in that the Fed seems to be able to talk tough right now while the Treasury and the reverse repo facilities, which the reverse repo facilities basically injects liquidity into the dollar system or it sucks liquidity out. It's entirely at the Fed's discretion. But the RRP and the Treasury general account, they seem to be supporting liquidity right now, even as the Fed is talking tough. So what's going on? Essentially, the stock market sell-off hasn't been as bad as people thought. The crypto sell-off hasn't been as bad as people thought. Bitcoin seems to be pumping on some sort of optimism. So what's going on? And and essentially, Arthur's point is, well, the Fed's talking out of one side of its mouth saying, we're going to be tough. We're going to engineer a little recession. But on the other side, the reverse repo facility isn't sucking a lot of liquidity out of the system. The Treasury general account seems to be pushing money into the system. Seems like actually monetary conditions are sort of not that tight. So this repo market, it's always really kind of confused me. I think that's the part I, I struggle to understand. But I, I guess the way to look at it is a bunch of money is going in there and sitting there. It's not earning interest. It's not being, you know, rehypothecated and loaned out. It's just sitting in this account overnight. And so the money supply looks lower, but in reality, we're just stashing it somewhere else. The reverse repo facility actually does pay some interest. But when you give money to the Fed, they don't loan it out to other businesses. So you're actually reducing the money multiplier. Whereas if the Fed turns off the reverse repo facility, it means that money market funds and all of these financial system actors need a different place to park short term money. And those other places that they park it, are riskier, but they'll also lend that money out and they'll create more financial activity. So as the reverse repo gets smaller, more money is being lent out in the real economy and kind of stimulating financial activity. Why do all this? What's the point? Just the mind game to make people think inflation is getting solved. So then prices go down because people start pricing their products lower. Is that it? Yeah. You know, it's hard to see the bigger plan. I would say that the reverse repo facility, modern financial markets, they've kind of grown up through this or organic, unplanned process over 100 years. And we're left with this weird system that has these central points of policy control via the Treasury, via the Fed, via the ECB. And the Fed's got some levers and buttons, and they're going to push and pull these levers and buttons to feel important and to act like they have things under control. It feels to me like the Fed has one button, and that's the price of money. And as they turn that up, it affects employment, it affects you know loans, it affects mortgages, 
obviously, because it affects asset prices, which then affect how co- companies can operate their budgets. Like it, it feels like they're really just turning one knob that just has a lot of second order and third order effects. Well, there's also the term pushing on a string, right? Because the Fed can tighten, but can they really ease? Easing depends on people's demand for risk and for loanable funds and whatnot. So I guess I'm kind of closer to the Jeffrey Schneider school of the Fed is essentially the wizard and the Wizard of Oz. They talk a (laughs) tough game. They can push a lot of buttons, but their ability to actually sort of achieve a policy goal is pretty unknown. I would say the high level view is even though we're getting some tough talk from the Fed, it doesn't really look that tough when we look at these sort of elements of dollar liquidity and financial markets. And I think that this kind of speaks to the assumption that the Fed can't really tighten the amount of sovereign debt in the system, the amount of corporate debt is very, very high. And so actually raising interest rates to be equal with the inflation rate, that's clearly not a non-starter. It would precipitate a financial crisis that would wipe out the stock market and make all of the wealthy political donors feel poor. So that's not going to be allowed to happen. What does this mean for normal people? Frankly, not much. I would say stay humble and stack sats is still probably the best plan as far as I can tell. (laughs) That's it. What else can you do? The one thing they're current, the Fed current current policy will likely suppress the price of Bitcoin for a while. And so you can stack sats at a lower price for longer. And, you know, if they do change perception and inflation comes down, because clearly what Powell and friends are attempting to do is decrease demand, decrease employment while raising rates to try to meet it in the middle, bring inflation down through some of these processes, you know, create conditions that reduce demand. But like you say, they're never going to meet there in the middle. They're never going to get it like, say they got, say they got inflation down to like 4%, which would be incredible because the real inflation rate is probably more than 8%. So, but imagine they they got their CPI number, whichever number they want to go by, down to 4%. They they likely could never raise rates all the way up to 4. I mean, I could see 3 3.75. They're never going to bring the rate all the way up to 4, right? This is never going to happen. So, I don't expect inflation to really be solved. I think we're probably going to be living for a long time with elevated inflation, but as bitcoiners, it is good for us for inflation to come down. So, the if you look at it from a pure bitcoin standpoint, their actions are going to suppress prices, keep sats cheap for a while. And if they do have any success with lowering the inflation rate, that just means your Bitcoin purchasing power will be stronger when the time comes. I think that's a reasonable point of view. You know, this stuff is complicated and some of us find it interesting, but if you don't just skip through because at the end of the day, it's fiat noise. We're diving into a Rube Goldberg machine of a system that no one really knows how it works. I agree with you that it's fiat noise, but I think it does matter to anyone who wonders why Bitcoin isn't at 100,000 right now. There are a lot of people who think Bitcoin's failed because it's at 20,000 as we record right now. And they don't understand how the macro environment is setting the price points for all assets. And I think that's where us going into this does add a little bit of context and understanding to the listener, because then when somebody says, oh, yeah, but look at Bitcoin, it's like a $20,000 and it's supposed to be like over 100,000 now. (laughs) You can explain to them, well, here's why. So there is something to it. I think what you're getting to, which I agree with, is there's sort of a point of diminishing return and overanalyzing, you know, what is their plan? What what are they trying to do? You know, what, what's their intention? That to a certain point is just, you're not getting you anywhere. What really matters is the results. Yeah, I mean, we could have shortened this section down to 
30 seconds and just said, Powell says he's going to make conditions tight monetarily, but the Treasury General account and the reverse repo facility speaks otherwise. Look at the chart. Okay. <laughs> Which you know is what? all that simple, really. <laughs> I'm just going to cut out the rest. That'll be our analysis. <laughs> I subscribe to a newsletter from Matt Levine. I think I've mentioned it before. And he occasionally has some real gems. So there's a story in here about Barclays Bank and how when a new company issues their shares on a stock market exchange, an IPO, initial public offering, it's this very big, exciting moment. But for a bank like Barclays, they actually issue short-term debt and short-term sort of securities all the time. They kind of do this as they need it. But when they do this, they actually need to register with the SEC how many shares they're going to issue. Uh, This is called a shelf registration statement. And they basically tell the SEC, look, we're going to sell, you know, 20 million shares over the next couple of years. And the SEC says, okay, thanks, you know, go forth and and sell. And as they issue debt, they need to kind of keep track of how much debt they've they've issued and update their registration with the SEC. Well, what happened to Barclays was at some point they lost track. And they started to issue a couple of these exchange-traded notes, which I think are some form of short-term debt, and it was over their shelf registration limit. And what's really interesting is what happened once people realized this. And basically, after a certain point, Barclays is issuing unregistered securities. And they're a serious entity. They have a lot of uh, money. Uh, You can actually legally do stuff to them. They have assets to go after. And so what happened was that these illegally issued securities because of a little sort of form snafu had an embedded call option. And it meant that if you bought these securities and they went up in price, great, you can sell them. You made money. But if they went down in price, you can actually sue Barclays and get your original money back. Uh Because as an unregistered security, there's a free call option. If you lose money, it's the company's fault. If you make money, fine. That's kind of interesting because I think that is the fate of ICOs potentially if things go a certain way. So little story from traditional markets that might be applicable to ICOs. I had no idea. They had very early on, they had to declare the total number of stock that they'll ever have. And then if they ever want to increase that to say, like do a a split like Tesla's doing or like Google or Amazon have have done recently, you have to go uh, ask your shareholders if it's okay to have more shares. And then of course they say yes, because they all love a stock split. (laughs) And then it's just the whole process is very silly. Like, you know, you're early on in your garage setting up your company and you're supposed to know how many shares you're going to need ever, forever. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I guess it makes sense. You have to get these numbers down. Yeah. I just, how would you know what to guess? Yeah, you, you just say a large number. I think it protects investors against me issuing 10 shares for $1,000 each and then issuing another 100 shares mm. for a dollar each. You know, because I, I could dilute right. you very easily unless I kind of upfront <laughs> tell you how many shares I'm going to issue. Yeah, that makes sense. Our next bit of tokenomics is a article from Kobe's Substack. Have you heard about Kobe before? I feel like he's way more famous than we are. You mean the uh, basketball player or do you mean uh, the beef? I think he's some sort of altcoin promoter who has a Substack account. Uh, He's a self-described Web3 idiot. That's that's what he calls himself. I would call him that too, I think, because (laughs) I appreciate his article, but it's sort of premised on Web3 not being a total fraud. And I think that's a big mistake. It's a flawed starting point, you might say, for some premises. (laughs) You nailed it. You nailed it. (laughs) 
So this article is entitled ApeCoin and the Death of Staking. And Kobe says that staking used to mean something, okay, debatable. But now staking just means, hey, if you don't sell your coins, I'll give you more coins. And so it's basically a late stage Ponzi game. And I completely agree with that analysis. I think that kind of says, hey, let's run for the exits on Web3 because this is a big Ponzi scheme. But he doesn't seem to make that logical leap. He then goes on to talk about ApeCoin. ApeCoin is this Yuga Labs Board 8 Yacht Club coin that they created out of nowhere and basically uh, does nothing. It's just an unregistered security, you know, huge scam. But Yuga Labs got to print money, so they did it. And the token ownership is just your typical ICO distribution. 47% goes to the ApeCoin DAO ecosystem fund. And as we talked with CryptoMom, DAOs are in fact not legal cover because since a DAO isn't a registered company, if you do stuff that the US government doesn't like with your DAO, they actually say, hey, looks like you've got a general partnership that is engaging in conspiracy. So being a part of any of these DAOs, if regulators go after them, it doesn't shield you like an LLC does. It actually amplifies the legal consequences because a general partnership is responsible legally for the actions of all the other general partners. And if you're engaging in conspiracy, that's really bad and you're all responsible. Whenever I see a Dow now, I think of that and I laugh. Holy smokes, didn't realize it, but of course that makes a ton of sense. And everybody kind of thinks they think of it as a Dow as a way to escape those kinds of issues and responsibilities. Right. And the distribution's crazy. So 47% went to the Dow, 15% community airdrop, 15% to Yuga Labs, 14% to investors, 8% to founders, and of course that 1% to charity, which makes it all okay. Now, what Kobe is writing about is a proposal to basically give away most of the ApeCoin Dow ecosystem fund to people who stake their ApeCoin. And this kind of reminds me of Terra Luna and the Anchor Protocol, where insiders got a bunch of, uh, was it Luna coins? And then they gave them away to people who staked their funds in Anchor. And this dried up demand to sell Luna. And this gave insiders runway to convert their initial airdrop of Luna into real money, like dollars or Bitcoin or something like that. And basically, that's what ApeCoin wants to do. So it's kind of an interesting look at this phenomenon, this model, which is still going strong, even though it's been completely debunked many times and resulted in massive pain for latecomers to this Ponzi scheme. The user side, I've been thinking about this this last week. People love a yield. Actually, Gary was saying this in his speech, like, you know, you start calling them things like, or in his op-ed, you call them things like APY and yield. And we are just trained to have like positive associations. Those are secure financial instruments. We believe in those things. And so these crypto projects can can kind of claim that glory, you know, use those names, use those words when really it's just paying out rewards for locking your funds up. So that way you can't run to the bank with them and sell, sell, sell. And I, I find it like particularly troubling just because I think human behavior is such that there is such an attraction to being able to buy something, put it into an account and then have it generate money for you. That I think that is going to be a very, very strong draw for Ethereum. I think it already is, obviously. And I think it's human nature. I love that kind of stuff. It's misleading and it's marketing. So nothing there in my view. Yeah, unless you had a lot and then you could stake it and make some return, then, you know, then you're then you're loving it. Which brings us back to the earlier point, which is that crypto and ICOs and all this stuff is insider games to the nth degree. It's peak fiat. It's if you want to play in this game and you're not an insider, well, congratulations, you're making an insider rich and, you know, whatever. You've been warned. 
Now, you were very brave and read a whole article from the New York Times on the Ethereum merge. Was it painful? Are you okay? Do you need a coffee afterwards? It was actually a little troubling, I I will say. And they published this uh, just 20 minutes before we started recording. In fact, multiple outlets are writing about this. What is the merge? And, uh, you know, I joke that it was troubling. And I just say that because in the very first sentence, you know, they 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 touch on things like uh, it's going to reduce energy consumption by more than 99 percent. You know, it's a it's an upgrade. You know, it's a big upgrade. And all of this sort of forgets that the only thing that made Ethereum competitive and get as far as it did is that it's been based on proof of work the entire time. The premise is just it's it's saving energy. So therefore, it's an improvement, you know, and there's not really any analysis of the culture change, the structural change. The overall kind of transition from somewhat decentralized to really centralized amongst four companies. You know, there's really none of that analysis, as you would expect. Yeah, it seems like a pretty stupid article, frankly. It says, what is Ethereum's infrastructure? And then they say proof of work. Actually, if you think of our article from last week by Gloria Chow, a blockchain runs on nodes and there are different types of nodes. And Ethereum's infrastructure is highly centralized in commercial data centers because they are full archival nodes. What in Bitcoin we call a full node. Ethereum has actually obfuscated the fact that it's very difficult to run an Ethereum full node. So they call it a full archival node because of the high amount of computation and the high block speed. I think Ethereum blocks are 20 seconds apart. I mean, really, really fast. You need to centralize infrastructure into data centers. The one thing about Ethereum that is decentralized is the mining because miners can join Ethereum mining pools and they can be, as long as they have good internet, geographically distributed. But what Ethereum wants to do by moving to proof of stake is to basically cut out all the miners and now centralize validation and construction and proposing of blocks into Ethereum holders, which will generally be staking their Ethereum on large staking pools like Lido or Coinbase or maybe Fireblocks. I don't know. Kraken's also one of the popular ones. Right. The New York Times, unsurprisingly, because their coverage of Bitcoin is generally pretty bad, they don't get into this uh, nuance. But the main story is that essentially Ethereum is moving to proof of stake for marketing reasons because they want to not get painted with the proof of work you use energy brush. And as a result, They're fully centralizing their blockchain into regulated entities like exchanges or staking pools. This creates financial incentives for everyone to stake with these regulated entities. And as a result, by giving up the energy expenditure of proof of work, Ethereum is really giving up, in my view, all of their censorship resistance. It's going to be very easy for especially the U.S. government, but probably any large government, to force Ethereum to censor transactions or change the blockchain history because proof of stake is removing the decentralization of a distributed proof of work minor base, in my view. I don't really know how to properly articulate my opinion, but it feels to me that Bitcoin's proof of work and energy usage is sort of a unique and important tie that ties a Bitcoin to something physical, that there was a real world expense, effort and cost that had to convert that energy into a Bitcoin. And that not only sets sort of a base value price for a Bitcoin because the miners have to make back their cost to mine, but it is a truly tangible 
tangible connection back to the physical world. I don't I don't understand what Ethereum what a connection to tangible things does Ethereum have once it goes proof of stake. And to me, it feels like Bitcoin's connection to energy is actually going to be one of its most important features as we figure out our energy game over the next decade. So I I, I guess I don't really understand like that seems like fundamental to part of the Bitcoin value proposition. Am I wrong? I think you're completely right because Bitcoin is actually most similar to gold. And gold was money for thousands of years. And gold works because gold is proof of work. It takes real work to dig gold out of the ground. And frankly, throughout history, governments have been broken whenever they attempt to spend more gold than they have. And this creates periodic constraint on the power of governments and institutions that have access to capital markets. And this constraint was abolished in 1971 when Nixon took the U.S. dollar off the gold standard, essentially breaking the post-World War II Bretton Woods gold standard system. And we've been in a system where money has no connection to the physical world, no connection to reality for 50 years. I think that that's problematic. Frankly, if money is the measuring stick by which we evaluate economic activity, then maybe it should connect to the physical world and have some sort of constraint. It feels like it's it's just becoming a fiat system and it's going to be managed by fiat leaders. These Coinbase's, Kraken, Lido, they're fiat companies and they're now going to be the ones that are in control. So this, I think we should just really quickly remind folks that maybe you're not familiar with Ethereum, God bless you. This merge we're talking about is really the merging of code that's been worked on for nearly like eight years to transition to the Beacon blockchain, which is, I guess, their proof of stake blockchain. And so they're merging the code, they're merging over to that blockchain chain. That's what the merge is. And I guess it's going to be across two different dates in September. And when they're all done, they will be proof of stake. Now, everybody who's staking will not be able to withdraw their funds until the next big merge as well. That's another dynamic, which I just find incredible. Not only could you not tell me what the total number of Ethereum in existence is, but you also cannot tell me when you're going to get your Ethereum back, which is incredible when we're entering into what could potentially be worldwide macro headwinds where people are going to wish they had a little liquidity. I just cannot believe it. Uh, But this is the merge we are talking about is this transition from mining the way Bitcoin does to proof of stake, where the rich put their money up for stake, essentially. That's their stakes. They're they're staking their money, and then they get to validate as a validator. Um, And if you're not rich enough, 32 ETH, then you have to put it up in a custodian who will then have your keys for an indefinite amount of time because these merges take forever. In fact, the New York Times article points out that they're, quote, essentially changing the engines out during flight, and that, quote, nothing has ever been attempted at this scale before. Well, we can probably guess that's going to have a few bumps. It's going to it's gonna have some things that have to be worked out before they even get on to the next merge. I, I find all of this incredible. And it's really creating a fiat system with fiat rulers and fiat rules. And refer back to Kobe's article about how staking is basically a game of Ponzanomics because it prevents you from selling your token so that insiders can sell their token. And another aspect of Arthur Hayes' piece that I didn't mention is that Arthur Hayes is talking about global liquidity conditions because he He is interested in the Ethereum post-merge pump. He's financially speculating on all of these deflationary dynamics pumping the Ethereum price. And who knows, maybe it will pump. At the same time, I would refer everyone back to Insiders Always Dump, the article by Nick Batia that we shared at least a week ago, maybe two weeks ago. Because Ethereum has a lot of insiders and Ethereum insiders always sell into these pumps. And every Ethereum upgrade over the past four years has reduced 
reduced liquidity. It's been a pumponomics game of squeezing liquidity tighter to push the price higher. And the irony is that Ethereum is a utility blockchain. And so as the price of utility token increases, the chain becomes less usable and you get competitors who go after a low fee utility token model like Solana, like, sorry, what's another one? Cardano. Yeah, you're right. I can see why this transition is really good if you're an early ETH whale and you need yeah. to get all the plebs to lock up their funds so you can sell for Bitcoin and like get some real money and stop, stop sweating about the Ethereum ecosystem like breaking underneath you before you've exited. But for regular people, it just seems like you're participating in an insider's game where you're the exit liquidity. And all of these companies involved are going to just funnel people right into this. Coinbase this last week, launched their staked ETH derivative. So that way you can you can stake your ETH and still trade and play around in Coinbase's system. Of course, Lido and others have something similar to this. And they're just funneling people in with marketing materials and educational materials. Like it's really a heck of like an opportunity for them. Like Cloudflare is getting involved. Cloudflare is going to offer staking on their systems. Like everybody just wants a piece of this pie. All these big commercial companies love it all these big tech companies. So they're going to sell, sell, sell. I expect the price to pump for a while in part just because the way the staking works, funds are locked up. So you're going to have people that are hearing about Ethereum. They're going to hear about this merge and people can't sell their ETH. So <laughs> just seems like the price goes one way for a little while. But what I think you just really eloquently outlined there is there is sort of this ecosystem pressure as the price rises on ETH. It just makes all of the ETH competitors more and more attractive, which then brings over developers and it just it is not really sustainable most likely but i guess we'll see they're always coming up with new tricks this episode of the bitcoin dad pod is brought to you by the self-hosted show from jupiter broadcasting the self-hosted show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure and having fun while doing it host your own media server spin up your own Nextcloud instance control your home iot devices with home assistant or spin up your own Ethereum staking node if you really want to fly by the seat of your pants. Maybe you got a lot of hardware to burn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, do you have a guide on uh, Ethereum staking? Might be something <laughs> to look into. <laughs> <laughs> We joke. I don't think Chris is going to be providing that. No, no. I don't think we'll. No, no. If you have 32 Ethereum, you'd like to donate to the self-hosted yeah, show. We'll give it a go. <laughs> Check it out at selfhosted.show on the interwebs or search for self-hosted show in your podcast app. Last week, we got some boosts suggesting that listeners would be interested in understanding Bitcoin transactions and what V-bytes are in more detail. And so we did the research. And I have to be honest, I still don't understand what V-bytes are. Chris, any help? All right. Okay. I was just thinking to myself recently, too, like, I wonder if it's time to reread some of the basics again. No, I don't really think I have a good explanation of V-bytes. We link to a Bitcoin Stack Exchange article by our favorite Merch, who talks a little bit about how to calculate transaction size. Since the activation of SegWit, a Bitcoin soft fork upgrade, which is short for segregated witness, transaction size is expressed in weight units. Weight units can be converted to a virtual size or virtual bytes, VB, by dividing by four and rounding up. Okay, all right. The virtual size dictates how large your transaction is when paying fees. Now, I think I know why they're doing it this way. Should I explain that? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know. I mean, there must be some rationale. The reason is in the name SegWit. Segregated witness means that the witness data, the signature or the script 
hash, you know, essentially the the truth that allows the transaction to kind of be accepted by the nodes on the blockchain is segregated from the transaction data. Does that make sense? Yes, I'm following you now. So you're basically, you're taking the witness data, you're moving it to a different place, and then the transaction data is now what's going to be counted as the, the weight or the block data. And this is why SegWit was actually a sneaky block size upgrade because it kind of redefined how Bitcoin nodes think about blocks. Yeah. And instead of the witness data and the transaction data all being in the thing that we consider a block, we've segregated the witness data. So the transaction data is really sort of what is counted as the block and the witness data you kind of get for free. And this is why a SegWit block can theoretically be up to four megabytes if you do very efficient transactions and you have like a lot of witness data and not a lot of transaction data, if that makes sense. All right. That is actually pretty interesting to know. I like I say it makes me want to uh, re-listen to mastering bitcoin or reread i like to listen to books that kind of stuff uh, just the basics there and i would say like that since segwit i've probably not really read up on much of segwit as i should you know i've i've just sort of been like okay that looks great all right that makes sense and i just sort of nodded my head i probably should have read more on it i have to say that once you dig into the details behind segwit a lot of bitcoin fundamentalism it's less clear than you think because if you just go on twitter you think okay bitcoiners are all about small blocks, they'd never increase the block size. Well, SegWit was a block size increase. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And the Bitcoin Cash hard fork, they did not like the complexity of SegWit. And I think that four years later, we laugh at them and we say, hey, you guys are so stupid. Look how your Bitcoin Cash chain is just a total mess. At the same time, SegWit is complicated. It's conceptually difficult. And I think that maybe 1% of Bitcoiners understood what SegWit was actually doing. And most other people were just sort of following the market. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that people who don't understand the nuances of SegWit, because I can't say that I understand it at a deep level either either are stupid or wrong or, you know, their views don't matter. It's just that these systems are pretty complicated. And even Bitcoin that is striving for simplicity and kind of a, a clean, clear purpose to prevent complicated errors and unexpected outcomes, even a system like Bitcoin has to get quite complex just to make things work. And so from that perspective, I look at projects that are trying to do more complicated things like Ethereum or Solana, and I just shake my head and I think, you know, I don't think you're going to pull it off. I think it's too complicated. Yeah, humans don't have a great track record at, <laughs> at really complicated software projects, especially ones that any kind of flaw can cost millions of dollars or more. It's That's really risky. At the same time, the Bitcoin Cash people said the same thing about Bitcoin, and they were wrong. They went for a too stupid solution. and their blockchain got huge and it kind of fell off the map. So it's a balance. Now, just to finish up on weight units, what happens is that a Bitcoin transaction can be decoded into what we call a JSON file. And a JSON file is uh, it's just a format for sending data around and you can look at it. It's very readable, but you can't kind of put JSONs on the blockchain. They're too big. And so data that goes into blocks is serialized and it's turned into a string of hexadecimal characters. And so you basically get this chunk of letters and numbers that represents a transaction. Now, the weight unit is essentially counting these and then dividing by four. I think that a, a weight unit is just one of these serialized bytes in the transaction data section of the block. 
That's my understanding. And you can look at this post by Merch to see some examples and understand a little bit more. That's a good resource. Thank you for finding that. But we also looked into transactions. And thank you very much to Andreas Antonopoulos for releasing his seminal book, Mastering Bitcoin for Free Online. And we've linked to chapter six, which deals with transactions. And in this chapter, you can see examples of Bitcoin transactions in JSON format. Very readable. I don't know how you listen to this, Chris, because this is pretty complicated. I had to uh, read through this chapter several times to just basically understand it. Yeah, I've never listened to Mastering Bitcoin. I think, though, it is on YouTube, but I have very much enjoyed the Bitcoin standard, which just doesn't get as technical as Andreas does, obviously. You might not want to listen to it. I'm not sure. Although the bit I did here was from him. That might make it easier. He is a great educator. And I think that Safedine deserves a shout out because I've just seen so many videos of Safedine fighting with altcoiners that I think that guy needs some encouragement. Just keep you doing what you're doing. Did you see the one where he went after the Celsius guy? <laughs> so great. And you just have like McCormack being like, hey, 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 you know, and then you've got Safedine being like, why is there a token? Why is there a goddamn token? <laughs> Yeah, there, and it just—it's interesting. Like all of those kinds of kinds of positions. Now looking back during this bear market after the collapse of Luna and, and Terra, you you just look at it and you go, hmm, they were kind of right. They had it right all along. And so I think the book holds up. And I think the nice thing about both of them is you can read both of them and gain insights on different aspects. The Bitcoin standard by Safe is, I think, more approachable by someone who's trying to understand what inherently gives Bitcoin value and trying to put it in the context of the rest of the world and how humans value things. And I think mastering Bitcoin is a better one for actually getting the technicals of how is this project accomplishing this transaction of value and moving it from user to user. And it's not how you think. There's no way to summarize this chapter on transactions, but Chris, I am going to blow your mind. Are you ready? All right. Yeah. Okay. So I want to send you some Bitcoin. So you're going to give me your address, right? Sure. Yep. Here you go. Okay. Thanks. Now I just sent you some Bitcoin and I'm going to look up that transaction on the blockchain and I'm pulling it down. I've decoded it. I've got the decoded JSON transaction and I'm looking in and guess what? There's no such thing as a Bitcoin address. Dun, dun, dun. So you've got... Um, you've got UTXOs, right? And those UTXOs have an address derived from them somehow? Is this what it is? They have a transaction ID. Okay. And so when you grab a UTXO and you get the raw transaction, you decode that raw transaction, basically, I can see a transaction ID. And so this UTXO came out of a transaction. And so this is kind of the Bitcoin, you know, you can trace the Bitcoin back all the way to the block subsidy where it entered into the blockchain. So there's no addresses on the blockchain. There are only these transactions and UTXOs. And so we can see the transaction ID. We can see which of the outputs of transaction this UTXO came from. And we can see the signature of the script that spent that transaction. So this script sig tells us that it was a valid transaction. And then we can see the outputs of the transaction. These are new UTXOs and they have a value and then they have a script pub key that tells us how to verify that you're sort of allowed to spend this Bitcoin. You know, what's interesting is all of these things are very computationally easy to verify, but you'll notice there's something else that's missing. Looking at that JSON, do you see what else is missing, Chris? Hmm, I don't know if I do. Where's the transaction 
fee. You're right. There isn't one. How does that work? Aha. The transaction fee that goes to miners is merely the difference between the UTXOs being spent and the new UTXOs being created. Aha. That makes sense. Okay. So there's just this bit of division there that the miners do as they process transactions and then they take those transaction fees. That difference is the fee. Okay. There's a lot more here, but Bitcoin, it doesn't work under the hood the way you'd think. Yeah, that's what makes last week when we were joking about, I think it was last week, those uh, pictures of coins that always represent Bitcoin in all the news articles. It's like, that's that's just perpetuating these ideas that doesn't really work like this. You don't really have a wallet full of coins in Bitcoin. That's not really how it works, guys. Reminds me of a YouTube video of a guy who was mining for Bitcoins by smashing open GPUs, trying to find the coins inside. <laughs> He'd probably have better luck uh, diving for hard drives and dumpsters. So shall we move to feedback? Yeah. And you know, we also have a real-time correction this week, too. Oh, please. Mm-hmm. Are you ready? Better grab your uh, breaking news uh, hat because it appears the BitBoy lawsuit situation is actually not over. When he said he was going to uh, cancel the lawsuit, he lied. And the lawyers, BitBoy's lawyers, are proceeding with the suit and they have filed a return of service, which establishes a date on which the person being sued must answer certain questions for the court. My gosh. BitBoy, the known crypto altcoin shill, lied. I am shocked. I just can't believe it. But now we don't have to have anybody correcting us on that one. We we did see that. It just happened while we were recording. We should have left it in. We would have gotten some fat boosts correcting us. Ah, you're right. Ah, dang it. Maybe people will boost in thanking for accuracy. I feel like what we ought to do, though, is, you know, on job sites where they don't have accidents, we ought to have no corrections for X number of episodes, right? It's like a celebration. I don't know. I think it might make us gun shy. We can't be afraid to be wrong. We do like corrections. so I wouldn't want to discourage correct. All right. I, I rescind my improvement proposal. And if you'd like to get in touch to correct us, please send an email to bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. You can also consider joining our show Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element or sending in a boost with a podcasting 2.0 app. Links to some of those apps are in the show notes. Shout out to Podverse. I'm loving Podverse again. It's multi-platform, it's truly open source, and it's available in F-Droid. And they're adding boost support to the mobile clients now. But once that mobile client gets boost support, I will switch over because I've been on AntennaPod, which I think the majority of our listeners are using, which speaks to the fact that most of our listeners are not boosting. So I'm sorry if you're not boosting. I think since we hear the boosts, it's easy to prioritize our boosting audience's views. That's a challenge. But also, it means that our listeners are on Android, which I don't know if that's meaningful. Just thought I'd mention it. I guess that's an interesting point. Yeah, there isn't AntennaPod for iOS. Uh, there is some proposals to integrate Breeze to some degree with AntennaPod. So I've kind of been suggesting for AntennaPod users, if they do want to boost in, why not try out Breeze now? Kind of get a head start. B-R-E-E-Z dot technology. And our first boost, 12,391 sats from at Jason listening to the Dr. Bitcoin Pod interview. Thank you for the mega boost. Digging into the interviews. Would love to hear the fee V-byte discussion as well. Oh, hey, we covered that. By the way, 2,000 sats to read on air is too cheap. Y'all's time is valuable and less than one US dollar for airtime seems like you're getting the short end of the stick. Thanks for the show. Stay motivated and keep going. I appreciate a listener that thinks about it in that way. <laughs> you know, I guess we just don't want to price people out. We love getting messages. It's just so fun and interesting to hear what people think. You know what, though? So I've been kind of trying to experiment to get the right flow on the JB shows. Um, and so I've been trying like 2,000 sats and trying 
try and maybe like we'll do the top four boosts or something like that. Um, and when I set the 2000 sat, what started happening is people would boost like 1,999 sat because they just wanted to, you know, give us some feedback, but they didn't necessarily need it right on air. So sort of gave people a price point to say, here's something you should know, but it doesn't need to make it on the air, which I actually kind of think is, has a decent function. Not everything needs to be shared with everybody in the world. Eight hours ago, we got a row of ducks, 2,222 sats from R. Shackelford listening to the Dr. Bitcoin pod interview. I appreciate the excellent content as well as the editing. Oh, thanks. Remember, we got some boosts pointing out my editing failures. It's nice to get the opposite as well. Yeah. And also, I just want to remind everybody that it's not like you are a professional podcast editor. This is your first time doing it. And so I think you're doing a great job as a, you know, it, it, it takes a while and there'll be experimentations still, I'm sure. There'll be new tools you try over time. It's a process, but I think you're falling into a good groove. Well, thanks a lot because Chris is a professional podcaster and does it professionally and his opinion is uh, meaningful, I think. So I really appreciate that. Oh, and uh, Shackelford continues, the first Bitcoin-focused podcast I found and still the best. Wow, so we have sort of a new Bitcoin podcast listener who likes us. That's cool. Hello. Hello. Welcome aboard. Don't worry. The Bitcoiners, they bite, but not hard. <laughs> That's just how they play. We then received 1,701 sats from TrueGits. Hello. I've been having a very busy and packed summer, so I haven't been able to boost in as often. Yeah, we've missed you, TrueGits, but it's great to hear from you. Been recently catching up on my podcast since I've gotten a bit behind. If you were to do separate shows, I would prefer it to be a slow rollout with certain topics eventually separating into their own shows. However, I still prefer the one show to rule them all monolith currently. Wow, I like the references there because I've got Lord of the Rings, One Ring to Rule Them All, Monolith 2001, but also Monolithic Linux Kernel. Did you get all those? I like it. Yep. And uh, I'm wondering, though I'm not sure if the SATS amount 1701 is a Star Trek reference. True Grits may have explained this before, but when I see 1701, I can't help think of the Enterprise registration number, which is NCC 1701. Oh, wow. We're already getting some show numerology Love it. <laughs> we do read all of the boosts. And so I grabbed one from Jin for Matik at 260 sat. And they write, hi, I was wondering what app or program for Linux or for mobile device you would recommend for self-custody. I'm looking for something in F-Droid. I have bought altcoins on Coinbase and Binance, and I'm, I'm willing to transfer them to Bitcoin securely. So any advice there? Uh, thanks to Chris for the explanation on office hours number nine, we hate crypto. That was an eye opener for me. Sorry for the low boost amount. I'm emptying my fountain app uh, to move on to another one. Big thanks to both of you. Thanks, Jen. So do you know of a, a wallet you would recommend in F-Droid on Android for something like this? I also think, Jen, it might be a good idea to just switch your stuff over to Bitcoin. Otherwise, you're going to end up dealing with like multiple wallets, each one with their own security issues, each one with their own update cycles. You could try something like Exodus to manage it all in one spot for a bit. That might be a way to go. But ultimately, if you just go straight Bitcoin, then you can just pick the best of the breed app that just does that one thing. And all the developer resources go into just making a good Bitcoin app. I think that your recommendation, if you're going to go altcoin and you just want a mobile wallet or a software wallet, Probably Exodus. I haven't used it, but you know you have, and and I think that seems like an okay option. If you want to go Bitcoin and altcoin, but use a hardware wallet, then probably Trezor is the way to go. Trezor is not the most secure hardware wallet because it doesn't have a secure element. So if someone steals your Trezor, they can hack out the seed and steal your crypto. But it's pretty cheap. I think it's a hundred bucks, and it supports a whole bunch of coins. It's not so good on features. It's not so good on running your 
your own node, but it supports lots of coins. So that's an option. If you're using Android and you want a mobile wallet for Bitcoin, I think Samurai is frankly pretty good as an Android mobile wallet. Another option is Blockstream Green. Blockstream Green has a Bitcoin wallet or a liquid wallet for the Blockstream liquid sidechain. But I think that Samurai is probably the most popular Bitcoin wallet on Android, to my knowledge. Yeah, I kind of wonder if maybe the way to go would be Exodus for the altcoins, Samurai for your Bitcoin, for your sats, and then, you know, sit on the altcoins, right? Just sit on them while the market's low. And then if that one particular coin's pumping, sell it for Bitcoin and then put those sats in your Samurai wallet. That might be how I would do it, Jin. Thanks for boosting in and uh, thanks for trying out Fountain. We got 10,000 sats from Bitcoin Lizard who sent it in using Boost CLI, which is awesome. He writes, achievement unlocked. You've made it to my list of must-listen weekly podcasts. Well, I would listen to more Bitcoin dad-branded shows. I like the current format that covers a broad range of topics. If the listener wants to go deeper, they can use the link in the show notes. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks so much to Bitcoin Lizard. Again, a lizard, a Bitcoiner, but don't ask what type of lizard. That's rude. Yeah, we got to make sure we don't do that. And our last boost that I grabbed here, Adopting Bitcoin 1337, Elite Row of Sats, and Adopting Bitcoin Rights, we love Fiat Jeff. Fiat Jeff is great. A famous salty Bitcoiner. He gives a lot of criticism and most of it is very thoughtful and well-deserved. So we really appreciate him. <laughs> he was just on Kevin Rook's podcast, episode 65. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Awesome. And Adopting Bitcoin is the Adopting Bitcoin Conference in El Salvador. I think it's this November. I believe we have a affiliate link in the show notes. So if you want to get a discounted ticket, I think you can click on that. Yep. AdoptingBitcoin.org. I'm just waiting for the Adopting Bitcoin Conference to boost in an invite for us. Maybe we could host a panel or something. You want to go to El Salvador? <laughs> I'd love to go. Actually, would love to go. I would love to go. Man, I, I would like more conferences in my neck of the woods, please, please. Maybe we need to put on a Bitcoin conference. It just seems like there are a lot these days. I think we should just do a meetup. I've been thinking that, although the summer is coming to a close. Huh, okay, well, the JB Bitcoin Dad Pod Bitcoin meetup. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be fun? Boost in if you would come to the Seattle Arlington Bitcoin meetup area. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in the I-5 corridor. <laughs> We're having this meetup at a truck stop off the I-5 corridor. <laughs> at a rest stop. <laughs> you know, some of them have a nice field. You never know. You could put on a blanket or a dog park. How about a dog park? That way Levi can have some fun. You know, joking aside, there are a lot of really great places like breweries and cider shops and places that have decent capacity and snacks we could order. And, you know, there's a lot of options around here. Yeah, well, boost in if there is interest. And for those of you on AntennaPod who haven't been able to voice your interest in a meetup, get Breeze, and I don't know how to do it, but I think you can boost in from Breeze and say hi. Go grab some sats on RoboSats. Get yourself the Samurai wallet. I think you'll be impressed. I think it's RoboSats to a Lightning wallet is super simple. You could actually go from RoboSats directly to something like Fountain or Castomatic. It's a really smooth process. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, August 26, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, with me. It's Chris. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.